0: Welcome to the ridge weekly podcast relationships are so important and yet they can be so difficult the pandemic social media and a divided country have not helped how do we develop new relationships or strengthen the ones that we have, how do we repair ones that seem to be broken, listen to this week's talk from the series through thick and thin as we explore ways to develop the kinds of friendships that will enrich our lives. Well, good morning. Uh, This baptism really illustrates what we're going to be talking about here today, that through faith in Christ, we are forgiven, but this then means that we need to be ones who forgive others. Why don't we take a minute and pray before we jump into our subject today? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you came up with this plan, really the greatest plan, to send your Son to save us because we could not save ourselves. We just acknowledge, O oh Lord, we're all like sheep who've gone astray. We each turn to our own way, but you are willing to place upon your Son the debt that we owed, the burden that we owed because of our going astray, and that through faith in him we have life. And we ask you, Lord, that you speak to us through our time today. Give us understanding, O oh Lord, and address issues in our own lives where we need to align ourselves with what your word says is true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin today by asking a question. Why is it so hard to forgive people sometimes? I mean, why do we struggle sometimes to extend forgiveness to another person, someone who's wronged us? And I'd like to suggest several reasons why it's hard. And as I'm reading them, I encourage you to think, is that me? You know, does this apply to me? Is this a reason why I might not want to forgive someone? First one is this, that we feel like those who wronged us are undeserving. We just have decided they don't, they don't deserve to be forgiven. Or could it be because whatever they did to us is unforgivable from our perspective? You know, some people have hurt us in some pretty big ways. Is it, is it possible that a sin is of such a nature that it's, it's just too big to forgive? Or is it perhaps because we're not Or that person's not willing to acknowledge to us that they sinned. Uh, It's kind of hard to forgive someone if they won't even admit they did anything wrong. And I think we've all known people like that before. Or maybe they won't apologize. They knew what they did was wrong, but they're too proud to apologize. And I know some who have said, well, if they apologize, I'll forgive them. But they would withhold forgiveness if the person would not apologize. Or maybe they're not remorseful. Maybe they don't seem to grab the gravity of what they did and they don't seem to be sorry for it. Do we still have to forgive people like that? Or what if they're unrepentant? Sometimes that's the problem where they've said they're sorry so many times before. They keep doing the same thing over and over again. And and so it's just obvious they haven't repented of whatever it is. Or finally, I think some people have a misunderstanding about what forgiveness even is. I think we have some confusion about that. For example, I think some of us think that forgiveness means you will cease being angry at them for what they did. But how you feel and forgiveness are two separate things. Forgiveness is almost like a legal transaction. It's releasing a person of the debt, but you might still have feelings related to it. And that does not mean you've not forgiven them. Because there should be some things in our lives that every time we hear the story or we remember it, we say, that's what's horrible. And we get mad about it. But forgiveness means we've released them of, of the need for us to get even with that person. You know. So I think people get that wrong. I think sometimes people think that forgiveness means I have to now be this person's friend. That forgiveness is the same thing as reconciliation. Those are two separate things. Often forgiveness leads to reconciliation, but not always. And on some occasions, I've encouraged people, do not do not spend time with that person, but you do need to release them. You need to forgive them. Or we might wrongly think that if we forgive someone, we forfeit our legal right to some kind of a remedy. And that's not the case either. When I was mugged and stabbed in Columbus, Ohio, and I went to court for this thing. I, had, I forgave the guys that attacked me. I really did. I had no animosity toward them at all. And yet, I celebrated when two of them were sentenced to go to prison. It was just justice. It was just the right thing to do. You can forgive somebody and at the same time recognize, well, there are other consequences that they're going to have to pay regarding what they did. As you can see, though this whole subject, there are lots of um, misunderstandings we have, and there are lots of reasons why I think we struggle to forgive. Despite all that, though, here's my takeaway today: We must forgive. If we know Jesus Christ, we must forgive because we have been forgiven. It is it is not optional for us as Christians. We are to forgive as God has forgiven us in Christ. One of the references that makes this clear is Ephesians four thirty-two. although there are others. But Paul wrote, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. We're to forgive others just as God has forgiven us. So how has God forgiven us? Have you thought of that before? How does God forgive me? You know, what characterizes God's forgiveness of me? Well, I think, first of all, God forgives me completely. He doesn't keep bringing it up again, which we tend to do sometimes with people. We say, I forgive you, and then when they do something wrong or whatever, we bring it up again, and you get this sense this thing's never going to be forgiven. When God forgives it, he removes our sin. As far as the east is from the west, it's gone, and I think God forgives us repeatedly. And many times over the same things we've done, how many times have you promised God, I'll never do that again? But you did it anyway. He forgives us repeatedly all the time. And I think part of the reason we actually struggle to forgive other people is we're not really mindful of how forgiven we really are or how much we really sin. As Christians, when we're aware of the forgiveness that we've received, which we'll talk about in a little bit, it becomes easier to forgive. But if we don't see ourselves as sinners, and I have to admit, I get a little baffled when, when people struggle to believe that they're a sinner because when I think of my own upbringing, I was raised in a Christian home, my dad was a pastor, and I did not have a lot of opportunities to sin. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of opportunities. Given the opportunities, I probably would have, but I lived in a, a religious bubble, you know, and my, my, our world was the church. All my friends were like Christians. I just didn't have many opportunities to sin like some have had, you know? And then I went to Bible college and a bunch of Christians there too. And yet, I look at my life and I can see that I'm a sinner. That sin is, we, we sin in many ways, you understand. We sin in the things we do. We sin in the, the words we say. Jesus talked about being accountable for every idle word, and we sin with our thoughts. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman with your heart, you've committed adultery already. And so when I put that together, I say, wow, I'm just a, a sinner. And one of the characteristics of someone who's truly a Christian is their ability to recognize how sinful they are. And John even wrote about that. He says, the one who says, I don't sin, you know, one who doesn't see their sinfulness doesn't know the truth. But if we're truly, if we know Christ, we know we've, we've sinned in many ways and we bask in the forgiveness we have through Christ, which then translates into forgiving other people. But we must forgive. And God's forgiveness of us is unconditional as well. He doesn't say, well, I'll, I'll forgive you if you promise not to do it again or if you do this or whatever. No, it's, it's unconditional. And so we forgive because we're forgiven ones. Now, there are different words in the Bible used or translated forgive in the Old Testament and the New. One of the main ones for the, in the Old Testament is "naseh," a Hebrew word. It means to lift up, to bear, or to carry. To forgive someone is to lift up to bear or carry. But the idea is you carry away this whatever they did to you. Uh, The picture comes from the Old Testament, uh, the concept of uh, a, a goat, that they used to confess the sins over this goat, which we use the term scapegoat. But they used to confess their sins on the head of this goat, the sin of Israel. And then they take that goat and drag it out into the wilderness so far away, it could never make its way back. And it was symbolic of the fact that the goat is carrying away all the sin. Now, when we forgive someone, we're saying that sin has been carried away. I no longer hold it against you. I no longer see it, in a sense. It's been carried away. Holman Treasury of Key Bible Words puts it this way. Forgiveness means to carry, to bear away to lift up the false sins and failures of others, to consider them guilty but forgiven. Forgiveness, of course, looks squarely at it and says, you're guilty. It doesn't minimize the fact that a transgression or a sin has taken place. It recognizes it fully, but then it chooses not to get even. In the New Testament, one of the main Greek words used to describe this idea of forgiveness is charismain It's a word that means to release a debt that is owed. J.M. Houston puts it this way. The Greek word charizomai, meaning to forgive sins, is distinctively developed by Paul in terms of God's gracious pardon, which grace, by the way, is extending kindness to the undeserving. And so Paul developed this, this word based on God's gracious pardon, and then he goes on to say sin is considered a debt. Now, this is a good way to view it because when someone wrongs you, a debt is in a sense created. In fact, if you know the Lord's Prayer, if you learn the Lord's Prayer from the King James version of the Bible, you know, or other versions, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Newer versions say, forgive us our sins. But you realize that this idea that when when you wrong someone, a debt is created, and so this is why sometimes people will say to someone else, well, because you did that, you owe me. Because there's just a sense that it's just right, that, well, there should be some kind of payback. You did this wrong, and, and so there's a debt that's created, and you need to pay back the debt. Forgiveness means I release you of the debt. I'm not going to hold that against you. Now, I don't mean in legal terms and whatever else. We're talking about letting, releasing someone Now, it's important we do this, that we extend kindness to other people, which one of the other Greek words has to do with the idea of extending grace, again, to someone else. It's important we do this because, not just for their sake, but especially for ours, that we forgive other people. It makes a huge difference in our lives, and when we don't, we're the ones who suffer. And over the years, I've known a lot of people that were in a prison of their own making because They refused to forgive this person over here. Their life was consumed by what that person did. And the odd thing was that person got on with their life. That person wasn't even thinking anymore about it. They they had left it behind a long time ago. And then this person's holding on to this. Well, you wronged me. And it leads to bitterness and it destroys lives. But it matters to God even, that we forgive. And this morning, in the time that remains, I want to focus on a kind of a rather sobering parable that's found in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Let me first set the context for the parable. Jesus had been talking to his disciples about the importance of really keeping uh, short accounts with one another. He talked about, for example, if your brother sins against you or your sister sins against you, go go to the person, you know, and and confront them about it and, and get it worked out. Because God wants unity and he wants us to love one another and and it really matters. And, And then he talked about forgiveness and forgiving one another. And this caused a question to pop into Peter's mind. It's found in Matthew 28, 21, and 22. We read, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. Now let's stop for a moment. Can you imagine forgiving somebody 490 times for something they did to you? 70 times seven. Now there's some discussion about whether the correct translation is 70 times seven or 77. But it's most likely 490 times, 70 times seven. Now when Peter asked the question, he was being kind of gracious about it because he said, Do I have to forgive up to seven times? And in biblical times, the religious leaders taught, No, you forgive three times. If somebody wrongs you three times, you forgive them. If they wrong you, you more than that, you do not have to forgive them anymore. So Peter's question recognizes that Jesus was more gracious than three. And so he mentions seven. And Jesus said, no, 70 times 7. Now, Jesus was not being literal here. He wasn't saying keep track, and when you get to 491, you don't have to forgive anymore. Many of you know that biblical numbers have significance. For example, the number 7 is the divine number. God rested on the seventh day. But um, the number 10 also is very significant. It's a number that means complete, fully. And so 70 is 7 times 10. It's, you're to love like, and forgive like God does and completely. That's what he was saying. Now that's a tough pill to swallow that we're to forgive to that degree. But Jesus explained why he used a parable, also found in Matthew 18 beginning in verse 23, where we read, For this reason the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king Who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves? When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion. "'Released him and forgave him the loan. "'But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves "'who owed him a hundred denarii. "'He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, "'Pay me what you owe. "'At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, "'Be patient with me, and I will pay you back.' "'But he wasn't willing. "'On the contrary,' He went and threw him into prison until he could pay back what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. And now we come to the takeaway. Jesus' takeaway, a sobering statement of application. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. That's what God's going to do to you. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the disciples. If you don't forgive your brother from the heart. Now, I want to talk about that. I think there's some, I mean, it's got to raise questions in some of your minds about forgiveness and how God forgives and whatever. I'll talk about that all in a minute here, but let's talk about the details of the story because it, it does help understand it a little bit. A king had a, a slave in a biblical time. Someone could be, become a slave either by being conquered from another nation. In other words, they either put you to death or make you a slave or else you could sell yourself into slavery and you could work, try to work off your debt. And so this king had a slave and apparently the, the, the slave managed some of his money or was given a loan. It talks about it being like a loan. In either case, it was, it was time to settle accounts and the amount of this particular loan or what was due to this king was 10,000 talents. Now, that is an insane amount of money. In biblical times, this, this story would be more unbelievable than most of our fairy tales. It is so out there. I mean, this story is so out there based on its believability. Nobody would believe this story actually took place because the, the numbers are so extreme, Uh, Dr. B.M. Newman writes, both the sum, 10,000, and the monetary unit, which was a talent, are significant, for in the ancient Near East, 10,000 was the highest number used in calculating. There were were no higher numbers in their day. 10,000 was the biggest number they could think of. I mean, we talk about trillions now and quadrillions or whatever else, but 10,000 was their largest number that they would use to calculate anything. It never got beyond that. And the talent was the largest currency unit of the time. In other words, the amount is intended to stagger the imagination. It's the highest sum imaginable to be contrasted with the trifling amount of the debt in verse 28 that the other guy owed. It was trifling compared to this. My study Bible, uh, I, I like my Holman study Bible, it's got notes down below. And I tend to, to put more, a little more confidence in those notes than a lot of Bible commentaries because it just seems like those notes are printed in a Bible. And so I know it's just a scholar and it's just an opinion, but, but when it's in a Bible, I think they probably thought twice before they put this down. Here's what my study Bible says about that. The 10,000 talents was equivalent to a billion days' worth of peasant wages. This was more money than was circulated in all of Palestine. Now you see why the story is, is so I mean, fairy ish A billion days work. A billion. Who Who could owe such a thing? Dr. John Nolan explains it this way, 10,000 talents would pay for something like 200,000 man years of labor. 200,000 years. Now you begin to see this. Why such a ridiculous number? To say that this guy owed this much... Jesus is making the point, and this is what we have to reckon with, that he's making the point that that's what we would owe God. That's, That's the debt we would owe God. In this parable, the disciples are that first slave, not the second one. They're the first one. The one who was forgiven a debt that could never be repaid. It could never be repaid. Again, you get back to this idea that sin is like a debt we owe. And imagine for a moment that every sin you ever committed is put in a ledger someplace up in heaven. Every, every, every impure thought, every bad word, everything you did wrong, the way you treated that driver behind you and in front of you, everything you ever did your brother, your sister, your parents, everything... This is what, by the way, makes the gospel message so wonderful, so amazing. Because Jesus paid the price for us. I love in Romans 4, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He just believed. And it was credited as righteousness. That word credited is an accounting term. And and the idea is that Abraham had all these sins Pages and pages and pages and pages and pages, a billion entries, maybe. And Abraham believed God, and a deposit was made, a credit was made on the other side of the ledger, erasing it. This is what our God does for us when we put our faith in Christ. But the bottom line is we're much more sinful than we realize, and and people don't, they don't understand This is why I say, if you have trouble forgiving, part of the reason is that you don't see yourself properly as being as sinful as you really are. When I used to go on campus to share the gospel with college students, I'd go to the mountain there, which is the student union at West Virginia University, and I'd be talking with a student, and and I'd, I'd say, how many times do you think is sin in a day? And they'd usually say something like three or four, or maybe, I don't know, a dozen times or whatever, you know. And by the way, every student I ever ran into believed they were really good. I used to ask the question, if God graded on a curve or half made it to heaven and half didn't, you know, 50 to 60, 60 to 70, 70, 80, 80 to 90, 90 to 100, there's your curve. Where would you be on the curve? In 100% of the cases, every college student I met, 100%. Said I would be between 90 and 100, that's how good I am. They saw themselves way over here. I almost laughed every time it happened because I thought, Well, obviously, there are no sinners here on this campus, they must be somewhere else. Although, I'd heard all these rumors about how you know this party school and everything else, but nobody I ran into could see that they were a sinner. But I'd say, Okay, fine, how many sins? Three to four, okay, add to it. Your words, the sins you commit with your words, things you've said, defiling things, wretched things, hurtful things. Add to it your thoughts, every sinful, impure thought, sexual thought against someone that you're not married to. Add to it, and, and usually the, the person I was with would start laughing at that point because they realized the numbers. Exponentially larger than it started with, or whatever. But then I'd pull out a calculator and I'd say, "Well, let's let's stop at 20 sins a day. That's less than one an hour, which is ridiculous, because some people sin constantly while they're awake. One an hour, you know. If you sin 20 times in a day, if you live to be 75, we're over half a million. The best. That's the best of the best." No, the debt, it's, it's beyond our ability to pay. And this is why this story was a little bit ridiculous because this guy who owed all that money fell down and said, give me time, I'll pay it back. Liar. There's no way he could pay it back. And, and we cannot either. That's why I'm, you know, if we think we can get to heaven by being good, we just do not again. I don't think we understand how sinful we are. All of sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. And even if you could start doing good to erase the bad, the next day you do more bad. And keeps adding up. We cannot fix the sin problem. And Jesus is trying to communicate that. The debt we owe to our God, if every sin is considered another entry, uh, it's beyond our ability to pay back. But the king in this story had compassion. Now, he was going to sell the guy into slavery and, and whatever else. He would hardly pay anything toward this debt, but it says he had compassion on him. Matthew 18, 27, the master or that king of that slave had compassion, released him and forgave him the, the loan. Now, what's amazing about that part of this story is that he went so far beyond what the guy was asking for. All the guy asked for was more time. What did he do? He said, I, I'm just going to erase the whole debt. It's completely forgiven, which is why I tell you if you put your faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven completely, past, present, and future. He forgives us our sins. And can you imagine what it felt like to this guy? He'd been carrying this burden of all he owed. He knew this day of accounting was coming, and suddenly he's told, you don't owe me anything anymore. You... It it would just change your life, you would think. But it, it didn't change this guy's life the way it should have. And, and this wouldn't be much a story except what happened in the second half of it. It's what this slave did next. After he was forgiven, in verse 28, we read that that slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 Ri. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you Oh, a denarii was a day's wages. A hundred denarii would be like three and a half to four months, uh, maybe in our culture today. The difference between these debts would be the one owed a billion dollars, the other owed 15,000. The irony is that the one who owed 15 could maybe actually pay that one back. This was the difference, and he grabs the guy, give me the money, and the guy did exactly what he had done with the king. Fell down, he said, just give me more time and I'll pay it back, and this guy had no Mercy, which really gets to the heart of the issue here. Here's the problem the forgiveness he himself experienced did not translate into extending forgiveness to others. That's the issue. The forgiveness he himself had experienced didn't translate into extending forgiveness to others. This is a quote by T.P. Herring. That's me. How could it be? How could you possibly have been released of such a debt? And it not impact the way you viewed everything and other people. Now, the other slaves were distressed when they saw this, when they saw what happened. And so they went to the king and said, Do you know what that guy did? He threw, threw the guy in prison for $15,000. And so the king called for him, picking up the story in verse 32 again. then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. This later condition was worse than what was threatened earlier. He was not just thrown into prison. He was going to be tortured until he could pay back the debt. You'd say, well, how would torturing help the debt. Well, you'd be motivated to find a way. (laughs) If you're tortured, you're going to find a way to get out of there as quickly as possible. And then Jesus ended the story with the sobering words, so my heavenly Father will also do to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Now, this isn't the only time Jesus said something like this, and it's a little bit disturbing. Jesus said a similar thing with the Lord's Prayer, you remember. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The assumption is you go to God to experience forgiveness, you, 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 you're supposed to be forgiving others. But after the Lord's Prayer, immediately after Jesus sat on that exact part of the prayer, and in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't, if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. Now, this raises a serious question because I'm of the opinion that when you put your faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Jesus paid the full debt on the cross 2,000 years ago. And yet both of these sections seem to say that if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Will God forgive you or won't he? He won't. But let's look at two possible answers as to why or what it means or how this could be true while it's still true that if we sin, uh, we'll go to heaven regardless Two possibilities here to explain how this statement could be true. If you don't forgive people, your father won't forgive you. Number one is if we're unable to forgive others, it's possible we have not experienced God's forgiveness. In other words, Jesus is saying that your inability to forgive other people proves you don't know me. That you have not experienced forgiveness yourself. Dr. Warren Wearsby put it this way. We reveal the true condition of our hearts by the way we treat others. And, and it's possible that's what Jesus was getting at. This is, then becomes a sign to say, do I really know God or not? Uh, you know, and, and in the story, the king did refer to that slave as being evil. You're evil. You're the embodiment of evil. What kind of person, what kind of person could do this who experienced such forgiveness? And so that's a possible interpretation here that we're, uh, and then, This forgiveness of sin, you know, I think all of us probably have one or two people in our lives, we have a hard time forgiving, but we're willing maybe to do it. Uh, I've known, though, a few people in my life that truly had the, they were just incapable of forgiving others, was my conclusion. They literally kept every wrong thing their spouse did, like in a ledger, they could not forgive anybody for anything. They became bitter about literally everything. They brought it up all the time. And I concluded in my own heart, you can't know Christ. Because if, you've been ex- if you really knew the debt you owed, and if you really knew the extent of your forgiveness through Christ, you couldn't do what you're doing here. And so that's a possible interpretation. The person's just not a Christian. But there's another interpretation that I think is probably more likely, and that is if we are unwilling to forgive others, we will suffer for our sins in this life. That we'll be, in a sense, tortured for our sin in this life. You say, well, what would that look like, or what am I trying to say here? Well, I think that we will experience, if we don't forgive others, and we're Christians, truly Christians. I think we will experience the consequences of our sin in this life, not eternally. See, I think your sins legally are taken care of at the cross. The debt is paid in full. Jesus said it from the cross to tell us, die. So, in an eternal sense, yeah, you're going to go to heaven. Your sins are forgiven. But oftentimes, you know, I know that there are consequences to the things we do wrong in this life, even if we're forgiven. You might still end up in prison. Even though you said sorry to whoever you hurt, you might still end up behind bars. And I think this could be the case, that there are going to be consequences for your sin that God's going to hold against you. It doesn't impact whether you know God or not. I I would liken this to like with marriage with my wife. uh, I sin against her. Sometimes she sins against me or whatever. But when we sin against each other, it doesn't impact the fact we're still married. That's not even on the table whether we're married or not, but our relationship is, is impacted by this thing, right? And I know it's, for me, when I know that I've wronged my wife and I'm too proud to, to do anything about it, it's miserable. I could pretend this doesn't bother me, but I, I'm so distracted. It's like, I gotta make this thing right, and I'm tortured, which is what this story is about. You're tortured. And so that could be it. Or it's possible that God will discipline us. Warren Wiersbe writes, God will certainly deal with a believer who harbors an unforgiving spirit. And and that could be the case, that he's going to discipline us. He's going to get our attention. One thing, by the way, I know that God does is when we don't treat others right, it does impact God's blessing of our life. Let me give you an example. It's found in 1 Peter where where Peter wrote that husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church, or actually that's Paul. But he said, love your wife, uh, treat her well, basically is what he's saying in 1 Peter 3. Uh, Live with her, he says, in an understanding way, or your prayers will be hindered. Now here's what what happens here in terms of God's blessing of our life. What happens in our lives? Say you're the husband in First Peter three, and you want a raise, and you want God to bless you in the workplace, and and you want to get this promotion or whatever else. And so you go to God and say, "God, please bless me." And I come to you humbly. I ask you, Lord, that you would bless me. I pray you give me this thing. And then your wife comes to you about something, and you 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 don't listen to her. You treat her horribly. God looks down, and he sees that, and he says, you're coming to me like this. Your wife comes to you, says, please, you blow her off your prayers. I'm not listening to your prayers. It comes in the way. I'm just saying it comes in the way. And so our unforgiveness toward other people can come back to haunt us. So let me summarize and provide some applications here. We must forgive because we're forgiven. So I'm going to ask you, are there people in your life that you need to forgive? And are you willing to do so? Now, if, you've, if you examine yourself and say, I, I'm unable to forgive, I'd ask the question about where I stand with God. Because, again, forgiven people are able to forgive other people. Now, maybe a big deal, and you might think they don't deserve it. Or the person's not sorry, but we're not always sorry either, and we certainly don't deserve it. We forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And God wants to do a work in our hearts. He forgives us so greatly. And you know what it's all about? It's, it's really the, um, the gospel. We're being asked to live out the gospel, which is forgiving. You know, the good news is that God forgives us on the basis of faith in Christ completely. And when we forgive others, we demonstrate the gospel to other people. And that's part of the reason it matters so much. Let's pray. Father, we just acknowledge we don't deserve your love or kindness or forgiving forgiveness. We don't deserve your grace. And yet you poured it out on us, O Lord. Our debt is beyond our ability to pay, yet through Christ, you said paid in full. Give us a heart, O Lord, that views others in the same way, willing to forgive, even as you've forgiven us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.